I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group. I'm joined by James Whelan, Macro Strategist and Investment Manager at VFS Group. How was the boat? How are you now, Paul? The boat was sensational. Thank you for having, thank you for letting me off last week. Okay, so this episode is the only thing standing between James and a weekend in Mudgy, so we better get on with it. Joining us on the line from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director Director at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Colgo. I'm all right. I'm looking out the window. It's pitch black. Uh, I'll let you know about an, in about an hour's time what the day is going to look like when there's daylight. But I'm good. I'm good. Good. Great to hear. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, it has been another pretty enormous week in economics. Uh, there has been a lot of them in 2020. Uh, we've had more progress on vaccines. Uh, it's rolling out in the UK amazingly next week. Um, boy, don't they need it. Uh, stocks went up a bit. No surprises there. Um, things deteriorated significantly between China and Australia and uh Personally, my favourite development, uh, Janet Yellen, joined Twitter. Um, so a big week. Uh, and on top of that, we got some pretty solid data this week in the Australian GDP figures showing that the recovery really does seem to be underway. Uh, well, it was underway in the September quarter, uh, even with Victoria basically shut down for most of the period to look at what happened and how it's all likely to play out from here. Uh, and we'll also talk about some of the innovations in economic forecasting that 2020 has brought uh, in terms of real-time data, etc. But we are delighted to have as our guest uh, Gareth Aird, who is Head of Australian Economics at the Commonwealth Bank, the nation's biggest financial institution. Gareth, welcome to The Bip Show. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, let's get straight in. Uh, headline uh, growth was 3.3% over the quarter. Uh, let's just do the basics first. Uh, give us a breakdown on, on what drove that growth. Look, it was a strong result. Um, the, the primary driver of the lift was household consumption. I mean, we saw a really sharp rebound uh, in consumer spending over the third quarter of the year. So that was up 7.9%. Um, without going through the other components, it's probably worth just thinking about what happened on a state basis because uh, uh, Victoria was in lockdown for you know, the, the bulk of the third quarter. And yet, despite that, the economy expanded by 3.3%, which means that outside of Victoria, things had to be quite strong. And how we get those figures is not looking at uh, GDP or, or gross state product because the ABS can't give us a breakdown of um, gross state product every quarter. They don't really, without getting too technical, they don't um, they don't know how to account for imports and exports at the state level on a quarterly basis. So they give us a measure uh, which is called state final demand. And in that it showed that Victoria contracted by 1%, but for the rest of Australia uh, there was an expansion of 6.3%. So that's Holy a really knowledge. strong result. Yeah. Um and I, even though these figures are backward-looking, I like to use them to think about the outlook. And it's clear that if Victoria was a big drag in Q3, uh, they're going to be a big tailwind on the economy in Q4, given, given the reopening. So I think, I think the takeout from the, the national accounts yesterday was 
the economy is clearly in expansion mode. It's it's happening faster than I think a lot of people uh, have been expecting, including the government and also the Reserve Bank. It's going to clearly spill over to Q4. And I think when we get to the end of this year, we're going to look back on the year and the economic outcomes are going to be nowhere near as bad as people thought when, when this process initially started in April and May. And also, I think Australia is going to compare quite favourably uh, to a number of other economies offshore, which are, which are going through a second round of, uh, of economic contraction due to COVID. So look, yeah, you know, in, in summary, I think there was a, a lot of encouraging signs in the national accounts yesterday. The, the growth outcomes were, were good. The, the dynamics around household income were, were incredible, and, and we can get into that. But um, look, as an economist who's reading the, the Australian economy, I think there was a lot in there to think the outlook uh, is looking pretty good, and, and that's something at CBA which, which we've been um, you know, thinking for a while is that the economic recovery is actually going to be quite strong. Yeah, um, I think it's worth flagging that uh, you were uh, very much on the higher side of uh, of the market in terms mm. of uh, forecasts for the recovery um, uh, from uh, qu- quite a few months ago. Well, all, almost through the whole COVID period, we've sat above the consensus, but we've been upgrading throughout that process, kind of keeping ahead of the consensus. So a few times what, what we found is we'd have a, an outlook which looked a little, bit, a little bit more bullish and then other forecasts would come around to a similar view and, you know, shortly after we'd be upgrading again because we've sort of thought the signs, they, they keep coming in better than what people would have expected. So that's why you're getting the upgrades. But we've been sort of ahead of the pack in terms of thinking about where things are going. And we're still there at the moment. I mean, relative to the central bank, we've got a far more uh, positive profile on growth than the unemployment rate. Uh, but dare I say, after yesterday's national accounts, the Reserve Bank is going to have to be upgrading their forecast too, uh, and not for the first time over this period. Uh, let's uh, look at, uh, in terms of some of the other, like industrial sectors, right? So there's still lots of room for for some sectors in there to get, to get back to doing some heavy lifting, uh, accommodation and food. I saw like the quarter uh, over the quarter growth was an astonishing forty percent. Uh, territory, which is just amazing. But there were other sectors that kind of didn't do anything. Uh, agriculture was a, a, a donut or a little bit negative, I think. Um, uh, financial services, flat, a yep. uh, few others. So um, how do you see the, the prospects for those other parts? Because like you mentioned, you're going to kind of add in Victoria to the growth picture in this quarter, uh, for the December quarter, um, but possibly other um sectors as well, so at a national level. So how do you think about those? Yeah, so look, um, the the parts of the economy that have got the most upside um, in, in terms of growth rates are the ones that have been hardest hit uh, by COVID. So specifically there, I'm thinking the services part of the economy, uh, travel services, um, accommodation, hospitality, I mean, eating out is, is coming back, but it still was um, very heavily negatively impacted by Victoria. Um, the, the transport's part of that. I mean, effectively all the areas that have suffered most from government-imposed restrictions, they're the ones that will benefit the most when restrictions are eased. And we're in that process now. I mean, the, earlier this week we found out if, you, if you're in New South Wales that you can now dance. I mean, that <laughs> it seems a small thing, but it's... We still can't, but yeah, theoretically, is, is that, theoretically is, well, we can. Yeah, that's right. I, I can't dance either to save so, my life. So, so is dancing like a positive for GDP? Uh, it's probably a negative for me because I, I, I got to avoid the dance floor through this process. Straight, it's a positive for GDP, <laughs> Colgo. It's all right. Ken, you got a question there, mate? Yeah, uh, Gareth, good morning, good afternoon, welcome. Uh, there are a couple of things, I suppose, based on what you've just uh, laid out for us. One is um, 
how much of I suppose even you know you were saying that Australia is sort of going to be doing better than most had anticipated, and so so far the numbers are looking to shape up that way. But my question is, um, how much of the mix is domestically led growth versus export led growth? So I mean, you know, at, before COVID and whatever else, we were a normal economy in the sense that. There was the domestic demand that led through and, and fired on all cylinders, but then there was also exports, tourism, education, people coming into the country and all of that. That side of things for now is still pretty much muted, uh, at least in, in my view. So, you know, how, how much of, of a, the, the growth and the rebound is factoring in the fact that in due course, either that reverts to being normal, the, the export side of things, or... Is everything predominantly going to be led out of the domestic demand uh, side of things? Yeah, look, it's, it's a good question. In fact, in the national accounts yesterday, um, what we saw is the external sector was actually a drag on growth. So uh, imports went up, exports went down in volume terms, and so it actually it turned out that that was quite a contraction on activity. Um, look, looking, looking further ahead, this is going to be a, a domestic-led uh, recovery, and that's okay. I mean, there's there's so much spare capacity in terms of the domestic economy that the significant fiscal injection that the government has put into the household sector, and again, we can get onto this, but basically the household sector in Australia has built up an incredible amount of savings because you've had a a positive income shock, which which is amazing to think we've gone through an economic contraction, but household income growth has actually stepped up. And to put some numbers around it, real household disposable income rose by 3.6% in Q3, uh, and over the year, it's up 8.1%. Now, to put that in perspective, in the, in the, five, in the five years of 2015 to 2019 inclusive, uh, growth in real household disposable income per, per year averaged 1.5%. So we have had this massive um, positive shock to household disposable income. I mean, it seems counterintuitive to think it's happened while you've had a recession, but it's basically because the government has provided so much support into the household sector. But it's occurred at a time when there's been restrictions on what households can and can't consume. Mm. So that has mm. meant you've had this incredible disparity between income and expenditure. And the net result is that you know, on my calculations, the household sector as at the end of household sector as at the end of Q three has accumulated savings above what is normally accumulated, because the household sector in Australia is a net saver, of around $98 billion, which is 5% of GDP. And, and oh. they are savings that have been accrued not because households haven't wanted to spend, they just haven't been able to. Yeah. Um, now, they were far sure. more able to spend in Q3 than Q2, but in, in Victoria, they, 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 households still weren't able to, to spend uh, the way they would have liked to, given you know, that Victoria was in lo- lockdown for the bulk of the third quarter. So... When thinking about the economic recovery, and we can sort of park the external sector to one side, there is a huge war chest of savings that have been accumulated in the household sector, not because they wanted to build them up, but they've sort of been forced upon them. And when you overlay that, the fact that households as a collective are actually feeling quite positive around the economic outlook. I mean, it's amazing to to think this, but if you take a literal read of consumer confidence, it's at a seven-year high. Uh, which basically yeah. means households today feel better about the economic outlook than at any point they have in the previous seven years. And there, there's kind of a circularity here. Part of the reason they're feeling good is because of all that income uh, that's gone into the household sector. But then when I'm thinking about the economy, we, we sort of know what's going on right now. More spending's taking place. The labour market's still improving. So if we turn to 2021, 
where I'm thinking about what, what's going to drive growth here in Australia, it's going to be some of that drawdown in savings, which will find its way into spending, which will then see more people um, employed, and that will kind of self-perpetuate a, a positive cycle. And you know, that can all happen independently of, of what, we're, what we're actually exporting. And I, I should just yeah. say on, on the export side, I mean, even though we're exporting a bit less uh, at the moment, the volumes have gone down, I mean, the price of iron ore is at a multi-year high. Has it? Hadn't noticed. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, that's, that's pulling up the Australian dollar with it. But we're, we're running these massive trade surpluses. We're running a current account surplus. And mm. it's sort of the opposite to several years ago where commodity prices were falling. We're actually exporting more. So the contribution to growth from export volumes was going up, but we weren't getting that much income for it because prices were going down. And really what matters for us – from the, from the mineral export side is prices rather than volumes. Yeah, interesting point, Ken. Sure, and and that's it, just a, just a final follow up, I suppose. Um, demand elasticity. Where, where, what does that play? I mean, there are a couple of things. Obviously, the numbers now, in terms of growth numbers and, and whatever else, looking pretty damn good. That's undeniable. But how much of that is a factor of coming from obviously a, a low base, given you know the shock to the system? But more to the point, and this is something James and I have spoken about sort of off uh, off the show, I think last week. Uh, the demand elasticity. Now, sure, there's there's been a, a huge amount of pent up savings. Households have got this much more cash, and it's not necessarily because they haven't wanted to. It's just because they haven't been able to. Fine, I understand all of that. Let's say now they're able to, over the next quarter or so, go out and spend and do more or less as they please. Is that more a case of what Janet Yellen or once called transient inflation or demand, you know, a demand bump and then things normalise? Or is this really a sustainable off we go and this is really going to be, you know, X number of quarters worth of push into the overall economy? Yeah, again, a good question. I mean, I think um, the, the, the stock of savings is so high that it can sustain us for quite a while. And the thing is, too, as you're actually drawing down on savings and boosting spending in the economy, you're actually then boosting income. Um, so you kind of get into a self-perpetuating groove where then businesses hire more people mm-hmm. and your economy is on a path to, to normalising, if you like. Um, now, I, I think and we haven't even mentioned the word COVID yet, I don't think, but I think as long as COVID doesn't return in, in a, to Australia where we see a new round of restrictions or whatnot, I mean, that, that's the clear risk. But you've, you've got to say if you're coming up with a central scenario for the economy, that's not going to play out because the authorities here by and large have done a very good job in, in managing the spread, mm. spread of the virus. So if you, if, you, if you take that out and you think, okay, the, the easing of restrictions that we've had is going to be permanent, we're not going to reimpose restrictions – then you give the economy clear air and you've, you've got all that money sitting in the household sector. I think it's really critical to understand the household sector feels very good about the economic outlook and that combination w- will see a drawdown of savings and I think that'll, that'll last uh, several quarters. I mean, okay. and the other thing too is you mentioned about um, the, the um, export sector and, and tourism is clearly an important export for Australia. But I think what has been lost, and it's something that I've sort of pointed out very early on in the piece, is that people forget that Australians spend a lot of money holidaying abroad. And in fact, if you look at the last couple of years, Australians have been spending twice as much money holidaying abroad as what foreign residents have spent holidaying in Australia. So in this kind of counterintuitive sort of perverse way, by closing the borders, 
sure, we're not getting that money coming in from offshore tourists, but equally we've stemmed a leakage of Aussies that normally spend money offshore. And the fact that we were spending twice as much money relative to what we're getting actually means as long as half of that money that was previously spent from Australians holiday abroad gets spent domestically. That is amazing. I'm going to totally to tomorrow. You oh, totally plug the gap. Well, yeah, that's right. That's, I, I think domestic tourism is set to boom. Yeah. And it would have already been booming had it not been for the interstate borders being closed. Yep. And, and so you said, Mudgee, I mean, that, that's a local holiday, but you're going to see – um, a whole lot of interstate, interstate um, tourism take place now with the borders open. And, you know, you overlay the, the, the saving story with what we used to spend, the fact we haven't been able to do a lot this year because of COVID. And I think you're going to see regional Australia do really, really well yep. um, mm. by virtue of the fact the borders are closed because Australians will want a holiday and they'll have to do it domestically. Yeah, and, and I think that there's a big there's this big patriotic – I don't – like to think it's going to weigh into it too much, but I think that there's this big sense of patriotic duty that we've got to get out there and spend a few dollars, oh. and we've got them. Yeah, so definitely a rally around the flag. Oh, for sure, yeah. it's an empty esky, and, and I'm going out to the towns. And, and look, we're we're seeing this in our data, and it's cropping up in the official data too. And, and I should um, sort of point out that if you look at um, consumer spending over the last sort of six months, there's been this massive lift in certain household goods. Um, where there hasn't been any problems with households being able to purchase them. Here I'm thinking household furnishings, office equipment, TVs, fridges, a whole lot of uh, white goods, electric goods. That You normally don't see something like that step up in an economic downturn. Mm. Um, and that, it, to me, is reflecting the fact that there is the desire for households to be spending money. It's just that where you've seen the, the contraction in spending is where households haven't been able to spend. Or at one stage they might have been concerned around getting COVID, so they limited activity i'm thinking sort of more around april may but um look at an overall level i think that the ducks are kind of lining up for things to go quite well yeah and we got a snippet of that in in the national council route yesterday yeah so i got a, a, a talking going to that and also alex alex joiner from ifm economist who, who tweeted something just as i was on the way in which is actually really good and literally just came off my phone just then but an update of this um He's put this chart, which I'm on a podcast, so it doesn't really relevant. But after Australia's GDP yesterday, our economy is still 4.2% smaller than in 2019, placing us in the middle of the pack among global economies. The good news is that we are likely to have a pretty solid Q4, as you said, thank you, where many other economies will be weaker. So, in fact, we're, we're middle of the road on a, global, on a global level. And we've had Victoria dragging us down. G'day to all of our Victoria friends. I hope that I worded that correctly. Um we, th- we think that we've still got a springboard ahead for the rest of the country. Globally speaking as well, I saw a stat in the FT over the weekend that that, that, that household income, that household savings that we've got is about anywhere between 75 and 10% of global GDP. So that's, mm. this is the world over that that is also happening. So this, this unfurling of the banner that is 2021 is going to be something that, that, that is truly significant. Do you think that it's and – I'll, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll sort of reiterate it – do you think it's got enough to really push inflation – into anything that, that, that may be continuous, that, that, that we may actually then start to see it, provided... The demand bump versus the... Yeah. If um, there's enough behind it to really push it up and, and create this self-fulfilling, because my theory is that, is that we're heading into a boom which is, which is going to be the equivalent to the end of World War II. Well, look, I, I'm largely looking at things domestically and, and there's enough to cover at the moment. Um, <laughs> and I've got to say, like, the, the, point about, the point about where we are relative to, to offshore, if you take it in a particular point of time, you're going to miss the fact that Q4, we're going to look very different uh, to offshore. So then when you get to the end of this year, we're, we're going to be in much better shape. Good point. Um, and also think, look, our, our public finances are, are in better shape and you know, border closures 
mean that we can manage COVID better. And th- there's a whole lot of reasons, I think, to be more upbeat on Australia relative to, to offshore. Um, but to the question around inflation, I, I've been thinking a lot about this, actually. Um, and the national accounts yesterday just caused me to to tip me further into the direction of thinking there's a lot more upside risk to inflation than the central bank okay. is letting on. And, and I say the central bank as being the reserve bank because if you listen to what this, they say around inflation, they are effectively saying there's a very, very low chance of inflation lifting anytime soon. And I know the way that they basically do their inflation forecast. They look at spare capacity in the economy and they look at labour market slack and what that does for wages growth and in turn they extrapolate what wages growth means for inflation and then you get these low inflation results and I would get exactly the same running an inflation model where a key input is labour market spare capacity. I think where running your inflation models that way and it's a good starting point but but the problem is what you're missing there is that you've got this huge positive shock to household income going on right now which is very different to wages growth. I mean, wages growth is, is ground to a halt in Q2 uh, and Q3. It was 0.1.2%. There or thereabouts, almost flat for the private sector. So you've got wages growth has slowed, but household income growth, as I said, is, is, is skyrocketed over a, a three-month period. And, and on our looking at the, the money going to CBA bank accounts, the positive shock to household income has continued through to Q4. So if you're thinking about, um, inflation through the lens of wages growth, then you're going to end up with a forecast for very low inflation going forward. But the problem with that is, you know, traditionally wages growth and household income have moved together, but now you've got this big disconnect. And so I think it's possible that when you when you, when you you get a bit of a savings drawdown start to happen, you're still going to see wages growth remaining weak um, because unless until the unemployment gets right down, it's still going to be hard to negotiate a pay rise. But that doesn't mean you're going to get a positive demand shock coming through. That means a lot of a lot of businesses can can lift the prices of the goods and services that they're selling, and you get a bit of demand pull inflation. So you actually see a gap open up between CPI uh, and wages growth. So you're actually got negative real wages, but you've got inflation edging higher. Now we haven't incorporated in, haven't incorporated that into our central scenario for the economy, but we're highlighting highlighting as a key risk, um, and that is something that the Reserve Bank is not doing. They're pretty much convinced that we're in a low, very low and stable inflation environment. And I don't think, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they've been talking about household income at all in terms of feeding into inflation. And they've purely been talking about wages. Uh, Let me just wind back a little bit, Mm. right? So the the level of household saving, right? The household saving rate, um, uh, 18.9%, like just extraordinary number. Um, uh, but I think just before we go further into the inflation question, because it's really fascinating when you get negative real wages growth, so, um, you know, low, very low wages growth and then inflation running um, maybe 100 basis points or something higher than that or, or even more. Um, but let's start at the beginning. Um, the sa- can you explain the savings rate and what it is? Because yep. um, there's a lot of talk about it at the moment, and I think it's good with somebody like yourself to to just um, start at the start. Sure. So the savings rate that we get in the national accounts every quarter uh, is calculated by the ABS as basically a residual between income and expenditure within the household sector. It's kind of as simple as that. So basically they try and measure 
all the income that's gone into the household sector. They look at consumption from the household sector. I mean, they can add in depreciation to get net versus gross saving. It's sort of neither here nor there in the scheme of things. And then you get a, you get your leftover, which is effectively your, your saving, and then you look at that as a share of your income, uh, and that becomes your savings rate. So it's, it's a fluid measure. Um, it's very different to the stock of savings, and I can come to that. But basically, if the savings rate is coming down, it means that growth in expenditure is stronger than growth in income. So that, that's driving your direction of the savings rate. Which but has been the story for the last decade. That's exactly so, right. Yeah, yeah. But then the level of saving, of the savings ratio, is very much driven by what percentage of saving you've got left over as a share of income. So what we saw in Q2 was this incredible lift in the savings rate. Um, it, it was quite low before that. It might have been 3 or 4%. It jumped to a revised 22%, so the ABS actually revised it up in oh, wow. yesterday's national accounts. Yeah, they found a bit more income, <laughs> uh, as you do. So that's 22%, which is massive. And that, that reflects the fact that government funneled a whole lot of money into the household sector in Q2. They said to households, we want you to stay at home. Businesses couldn't sell certain things. Huge amount of savings. What we then saw yesterday in the national accounts is that expenditure bounced quite sharply. I mean, 7.9% increase in household consumption is huge. Um, but household income also stepped up. And, and so you had a small drawdown in the savings ratio. But even though the ratio fell, the, the level of savings actually went up. And that's, that's the difference between kind of stock and, mm. and flow. So if you add up what the ABS, and you've got to do a few calculations here, but if you add up what the ABS estimates was actually saved in Q2 and then again in Q3, even though we got that slight drawdown, uh, you're sitting at $98 billion, um, which is, that's 5% of GDP. $98 billion dollars saved over the quarter. Or uh, over two quarters. Over two quarters. Yeah, so, yeah, so add the two quarters $100 together. $100 billion. Dollars yeah, so, so you yeah. can have this um, dynamic, and this is something that, that probably most people wouldn't be aware of, but you can have the savings rate falling, but the level of savings going up provided the savings ratio is high enough. Uh, and that's the situation that we had in, 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 Q, in Q3. Uh, so I, I think in Q4, you'll see the savings ratio fall quite a bit. But in terms of the level of savings above and beyond what's normally saved, you're going to get another um, boost to savings. And so, as I said, we get to the beginning of next year, you know, the, the amount of savings is going to be well over $100 billion. And that excludes the early withdrawal of super. That That is not part of the way the ABS measures savings because it's not considered income. It's it's just a balance sheet transfer for if you're taking out your super and converting it into cash. So you could even argue that, that, that there's more there than that. I mean, to Another way to put some figures around this, if, if, I, if I look at CBA bank accounts, and so we've done some work around this with the analytics part of the bank, um, so if, if you add up all the, all the savings that are sitting in CBA bank accounts, so you get a stock of savings, and that's in um, normal transaction accounts, mortgage offset accounts, savings accounts, kind of the, the, the range of those accounts, the, the stock of um, savings sitting in those accounts is up 15% through the year. And, and if I go back looking at previous years, it only ever goes up sort of 3 3 4%. So that, that's capturing just how much money is sitting there uh, in, in bank accounts. Like, so like a quadrupling or quintupling almost of, uh, of the amount of savings. That, that, in- that, that's right. And so I, I kind of use what our CBA data says. We obviously don't bank the entire population, so mm. um, we've got a proportion of it. So I can see what's going on there and the, with, with the stock of savings in CBA bank accounts. I can then overlay what the, the ABS is telling me is happening around income and expenditure, 
and that's when I can start to, to get a view on a dollar value of, of savings. And we've, we've never seen this. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are making the mistake of thinking that the government is going to be withdrawing support from the economy, and, and they are, but a whole lot of the support that they've put into the economy hasn't actually found its way into the economy. Yeah. And so that's, that's going to find its way into the economy well, in 2021. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you think uh, is the trigger for people starting to – to spend it right, so it's a hundred billion dollars. So in in private equity land, you would you would call this dry powder, right? Yep. Um, so um, you know money that's ready to to get deployed, invested, spent. Um, uh, and particularly in private equity land, a lot of it just spent. Um, but uh, but uh, you know what is what is going to trigger people to to start deploying it, and then where where do you think it will be spent? So where 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 will uh, which sectors, parts of the economy will get the benefit of it. Yep. So, so people are doing that now um, to the extent that we've saw that, that big lift in um, household expenditure. And it would have been a lot stronger had it not been for restrictions imposed in Victoria. So in, in a funny way, you would, would have actually seen a far bigger drawdown of the savings rate, except for the fact that the government has still been pumping money into the household sector over Q3. It's almost like households can't keep up with spending the money that, that's coming in. Um, and so we're going to see that in Q4. What we'll see is, as I said, income growth is, is going to hold. It's not, it's not coming off. Um, and, and that's virtue of the fact that the government payments have come down a bit, but actually we're generating more now market-based income through the fact that employment's up and there's more people working. So that's generating kind of new income. But if we look at what's actually going to drive a further increase in spending, it's, it's just going to be the further easing of restrictions. Um, Victoria is the, the obvious one, but then – and we, we touched on domestic tourism before. Um, we'll, we'll see further restrictions eased around capacities at venues. Um, you know, you go, um, concerts will start back up. You know, sporting events, all that sort of stuff. It's all discretionary spend, really. But that's going to where, where you'll see the big growth. And basically, you know, households are cashed up. They'll spend the money where they want to. There'll be things available to spend money on that haven't been available over the last kind of three to six months. Uh, and look, a lot of a lot of money is going to find its way into the discretionary part of the economy. I mean, I should probably add, not, not all the money is going to get spent. I mean, there will be households that save it. There will be households that use that additional money uh, to repay debt. And dare I say, there will be households that use that money to you know, put it into assets. So buy equities, buy um, houses, whatever it is. It, James wants them to buy themed ETFs. Yeah, yeah. The, the money will go <laughs> in a lot of different places, but a lot of it will get spent, yeah. and particularly yeah. amongst lower income households, who we know that they have a, a higher propensity to um, to spend additional income. Astonishingly, the RBA has said that they're not expecting to lift rates for three years. Uh, now, there's also been a very important change in uh, RBA policy, which is that they're going to. Um, they've said they are going to base any. Uh, changes in the um, in policy on actual data rather than forecast data. Right. So typically they would look uh, three six months ahead and say, well, actually it looks like we're going to, you know, uh, in the last few years inf- inflation is going to continually undershoot, so we probably need to cut again. Um, but now they're saying uh, they will wait for the actual data to come through and uh, show it a little bit like the US. Um, the Fed is saying, you know, we want to see sustained. Um, meeting of, uh, of of targets in in actual data. So, um, what is the risk here? Um, uh, we've talked a little about how you get the, you know this demand pulse coming through from um, 
the combination of the dry powder in bank accounts and the economy starting getting back up again. So I suppose the risk is firms kind of say, well, actually, there's plenty of money around. Uh, we can hold prices where they are. Um, we don't need to discount. Um, and the little disinflationary pressures that we've that have been so prominent to the economy for years go away, and you start to get um, firmer uh, inflation. So how do you think about that? Look, I, I think we'll see a bit of that. In fact, even though inflation is still low at the moment, if you drill into the basket, there's already a little bit going on there. Um, it's interesting. I pointed out before that there was quite a big lift in spending on a whole lot of sort of household goods and um, TVs and fridges and whatnot. If you look at the CPI basket and you drill down to that level, um, there's actually been quite a lift in prices over the past few quarters. So I think it's um, the, the categories of furnishings and fittings, uh, textiles, a few others. Basically, where the areas where spending has lifted quite significantly, uh, prices have followed upwards. So. It does, it does suggest that the, the, the old laws of supply and demand are, are still in play. Uh, and fruit and vegetables another case in point. I mean, we had to eat home a lot more because of COVID and then the supermarkets um, pushed up prices of fruit and veg and that found its way in the CPI. So, look, on the whole, the basket is still low, but you, you're getting a, a little taste of, of what could come. Um, I should still say that's, that's still the risk at the moment. I'm not – we haven't sort of come around fully to, to – to, have that as a central scenario that inflation is going to start to lift quite materially. But I think the risk of that happening is is increasing the longer this positive shock to income goes goes on and, and the more you're kind of seeing you know, strong consumer sentiment surveys, plenty of fiscal stimulus. I mean, the round of state budgets that we just had was was quite incredible. Uh, so there's there's lots yeah. of, of stimulus still to come. Half a trillion uh, in, yep. in uh, over over a number of years, but half a trillion in borrowing. That's right. And look, look the, the and and the the um, the Commonwealth and state are borrowing, knowing that the Reserve Bank is is buying their bonds. I, I should just say, in terms of the the guidance from the Reserve Bank about um, the focus now on actual outcomes rather than forecast outcomes, they they're talking about that with with respect to the cash rate. Um, they're not talking about it with respect to uh, QE or yield curve control. Um, so what, what they've kind of said is we're not going to raise the cash rate until inflation is comfortably within target and it's going to stay there, and, and fair enough. But they haven't made that same statement for, for the three-year target on the, uh, on the government bond. And that's where I think uh, we're going to see some action next year, and that, that's our view at Commonwealth Bank, because what – what, having that three-year, um, having the target yield on the three-year government bond the same as the cash rate is your implicit signal that you don't intend to raise the cash rate for at least three years. And, and that's what the Reserve Bank is saying at the moment. But every time you say it, it's another three years because you're saying at least three years from that point in time that you say it. So if you're still saying it mid-next year, well, actually that's four years because you first started saying it you know, the middle of this year. So so it's almost like um, every time you wade in and buy and, and, and sit on the the uh, interest rate at, at the three year on the three year bond by buying by buying those mm. bonds, you're you're sending the same signal that it's going to be another three years. While ever while ever that interest rate on the three year yield is the same as the cash rate, yes. So so what I think will happen is um, the the data is coming in a lot better than the Reserve Bank is expected. Um, they're going to need to upwardly revise their profile for growth. That means by extension, they have to downwardly revise their profile for the unemployment rate. And at some point, the market is going to say, um, with, with forecasts that are improving, you can't keep saying 
another three years because you, that's a statement you can't make indefinitely you if the let, economic data keeps you improving. Let, you got to let it go. Yeah, yeah. so at some point um, yeah. the board won't be convinced that they want to keep the cash rate on hold for another three years and therefore they have to do something mm. about that target on the three-year bond. Now, they can either remove it or they can lift it if they want to try and kind of manage manage the market. But we, we've got a published view that we think they will either remove it or lift it by middle next year because the data is going to make the case that they just can't keep saying another three years. Which is it'll yeah. certainly be <coughs> interesting. Um, so um, this is this brings us to the forward to looking forward. Um, Ken has a question on on the outlook. Yeah, yeah, a couple of things I suppose on on, on the. On the three-year window that we were just discussing, I think it becomes a case of whether they want to just lock it in or they want to average inflation targets. So, I mean, I suppose if, if, if they're prepared to let the economy run hot, uh, or, you know, what, what could potentially be hot, then it becomes average inflation targeting as, as the US is trying to assume, and, and they're probably just going to push it out the curve maybe. But I think, yeah, it, it's a while yet. They're, they're sceptical at the best of times, the RBA, so I think it, it might be a while. But what I did want to ask... Uh, beyond just rambling on with my own opinion, um, is let, let's, let's, if we look at what we know now in terms of the Australian political and, and, and financial economy and also the global, assuming things remain uh, as they are, what, Gareth, is your view, at least for Australia initially and then probably further out for a little bit global, over the next 12 to 18 months, assuming things um, stay as they are and everything that we know via vaccines and the rest continues as per how, how do you see things playing out in terms of the australian economy or yeah i suppose what well, well, we've covered the australian economy quite quite a bit obviously over the last half hour or so so i suppose more on the global scene and where australia could fit in within the global scene so it's probably worth starting with china then because that's our major trading partner and there's yeah. clearly some some things going on there which are developments that are not favorable at the moment um, you know, you've got actually two um, competing forces as far as the, the China trade story goes. One is that they're stimulating their domestic economy with more infrastructure spend, and that's in part driving the price of iron ore higher, which is clearly favourable favorable for us. So what they're doing there is, is helpful. What isn't helpful, though, is that they um, – they keep continue to expand the list of um, its, its goods at this stage that uh, they're, they're imposing restrictions on from, from us here in Australia or they're imposing tariffs or a few other um, bits and bobs. But effectively, um, the, the trade relationship that we have with China uh, is not has not been heading in the right direction uh, this year. And I think that's, that's increasingly becoming a risk, uh, a downside risk to the economic outlook. I think, you know, it's not going to large enough to derail the kind of bigger dynamics that I've been talking about before with savings and that drawdown and the domestic demand side of the story. But I think if we were at kind of an equilibrium of full employment, you know, trend growth right now, and these things were happening happening to do with China, then you would be downwardly revising your outlook based on that from a trade perspective. So, look, I, I think it's a, it's a clear risk for Australian exporters at the moment. Um, I think it's as an economist, I, I can't have a view on how this is going because there's a clear political element to it and we'll just have to watch and see. But uh, it's definitely not not helpful for us. And so when thinking about certain export markets or certain export commodities rather, uh, there's a bit of risk there. As far as the global economy goes more broadly, I mean, um, the news on the vaccine seems to be coming in um, 
pretty good on a daily basis now. I mean, in, in, it looks like in Britain, I think they're going to be um, you know, distributing a vaccine. So we'll, we'll wait and see how that goes. But that's that's going to result in a, a big um, a big boost to the global economy. Um, you know, th- there's plenty of upside, I think, in in Europe and and the US um, when a vaccine comes around because the, the single biggest um, handbrake on the whole economy right now is COVID. So if you have a vaccine that works. Well, you kind of remove that, and if the governments um, remain pretty committed to stimulating their economies, then you know, the global economy should make a, a pretty good recovery. So, you, I guess you, you're seeing that reflected in equity prices right around the world at the moment. And I think you know, the, the macro backdrop is actually going to be good for Australia. It's just that the, the China Australia story uh, has not been moving in the, the right direction. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. Well, the, the funny that funny that you note that, and this is one of those things of having a pre-recorded and not live podcast. But since we started recording it, uh, it hit Bloomberg that China is allowing our shipment of coal to uh, to go in. Well, that's good. That's a good. That's some good news there. So that factor, is. It's factor, right. factor that into the exports. But yeah. the, uh, and uh, I think on the vaccine thing, uh, it really is staggering. Um, the volume of this stuff that they can manufacture yeah. uh, is is huge. Um, I think there'll probably be some choke points in terms of the distribution. Uh, and there'll be some questions around who gets vaccinated first, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. All that has to get – but it's going to happen pretty quickly. So, you know, by the end of uh, the first quarter next year, um, you know, this is probably going to be uh, a receding issue uh, in terms of risk. Um, The the health risk that's been – uh, sitting with us over the last sixty-seven months of twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, look, that, that's right. And 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 in a, in a way, a lot of the you know the government policies um, have been designed to keep as much of the economic furniture, if you like, intact throughout this period, so that when you remove your your key your key handbrake on the economy, you're good to go again, and you haven't sort of destroyed good businesses. And I think I, I don't cover what other countries are doing specifically in terms of protecting their local businesses. But I think in Australia's case, you know, we've done a pretty good job, um, and it's not just the government. Clearly the banks have been part of this in assisting a whole lot of businesses and households through this process so that when you remove COVID and when things can go back to normal and we go back to being you know, a market-driven economy, capitalism's back again and we, we, we don't have the, the same degree of restrictions and government intervention and all that sort of stuff, then... You've, you, you, you're good to go because you've preserved uh, as much as you possibly can. And I think in Australia's case, we've done that. Yeah, I, I, like I, as I said you know, a few months ago, you know, three cheers for the nation state and three cheers for fiscal policy. It's, uh, it's actually been uh, pretty, pretty extraordinary the way a lot of company, uh, countries, uh, especially Australia, have dealt uh, flexibly with this uh, uh, in terms of the policy response. Um, we are tight on time. I want to ask you about downside risks. Um, we've talked about China. What about the stimulus withdrawal um, issues with insolvency rules mm. um, coming back into play? Um, uh, how do you think about that? Yep. So, so um, I guess you can appreciate that we get a lot of questions on that, and and the concern initially was the fiscal cliff that related to Q four, and we're in now uh, early December, and things are going very very well. Uh, and I, I can speak to our internal data here. So we've seen that government payments um, supporting households and supporting business have been tapered through Q4. And I'm specifically referring to there that the job seeker payment uh, has gone down. The the coronavirus supplement uh, was $550 a fortnight. That's dropped to $250. But the government has said the people who are on um, uh, 
uh, on Job Seeker can earn up to three hundred dollars a week now and still get that payment. And so, so we've seen, and, and also you've had the Job Keeper payments go down. So the number of um, people receiving Job Keeper payments we found out on Monday this week is now one and a half million from three and a half million. And also, you know, some of those payments have been lowered based on the number of hours that the people were working before. And actually, the absolute payment has come down a bit. So we've already gone through a bit of a, a tapering. And when we look at our internal data, this is where the really encouraging um, data is, is that we have seen a lift in wages and salaries that are being paid into CBA bank accounts at the same time as the, the government payments have been going down. And it, it, it looks at the moment like the settings have been perfectly calibrated because um, household income has basically been stable through Q4 at the level that it was towards the back end of Q3. So you're getting at the moment this really smooth handover um, from the government back towards you know the market market driven income, and the other thing you've got supporting household income at the moment is is tax cuts which are coming through. So when we're looking at wages and salaries into CBA bank accounts, there after tax, so they've had a little bit bit a bit of a boost from that. So I think you can sort of say we've successfully negotiated that first round of tapering. There's going to be more of it though um, come the end of Q1. Uh, when at the moment the way the policy is designed, JobKeeper will come to an end. So that, that's your key source of risk. But I, I think you know, by the time we get to the end of Q1, which is four months away, if the economy continues on the, the path of improvement that it's been on, and you know, that, that's our working assumption now, as I said, you've got more restrictions, ease, your firms are con- you know, still putting more people on, growth in hours worked, more spending, more economic activity, that by the time you get to the end of Q4... Uh, I don't think there's going to be that many businesses that actually need uh, a wage subsidy to keep staff on. All that will happen is that businesses w- that previously qualified for JobKeeper uh, will just go back to paying staff um, out wages out of sales, which which has always been the case. Now, at the margin, there'll be some people that lose their job, but will it be enough to kind of derail what, what we think is going to be a pretty, uh, a pretty entrenched economic recovery? No, I, I think as long as COVID doesn't come back in and get restrictions, which, as I said, is not our working assumption, then I think things are going to look uh, even better or or quite a bit better in four months' time than they do today, and that will mean that you can negotiate that notional fiscal cliff quite successfully. Uh, You've mentioned the thing about looking at the internal data, and that really is extraordinary. Uh, You say that, you know, at an aggregate level it is uh, staying stable um, but you've mentioned this the internal data um, a few times and really think it's fascinating and it definitely has been one of the uh, many economic in, uh, in forecasting innovations and data innovations of this year is you know when everybody was kind of in a bit of a panic uh, first half of the year trying to figure out what was going on in the economy um, organizations like yourselves um, but also Google and Apple started uh, publishing mobility data uh, and uh, different government departments started sharing things more widely to to, to sort of help um, lots of people understand yeah. what the hell was going on. Um, so uh, I wondered if you could pull back the curtain a little bit more on that and, uh, and talk about, you know, how you've used it um, and how, also how good a leading indicator you're starting to find this in terms of how it can, what it can tell you about future official data. Yeah. Look, so it's it's been incredibly helpful um, working at CBA to have access to our internal data um, on spending, 
on income. And so there I'm talking about the money that's going into CBA bank accounts in the form of wages and salaries. We're able to track government payments into CBA bank accounts. On the spending side, we're we're able to look at um, all money that's being spent on uh, CBA credit and debit cards. uh, And the analytics guys can cut it up sort of any which way they can do it by location. Um, So we're interested there in the state breakdown. They can do it by online or in store. They can do it by um, type of uh, good or service. They can get to the individual levels of um, food, alcohol services, you name it, a whole whole lot of different ways. And what that has meant we've been able to do is in real time actually understand what's going on in the economy. Um, Now, normally – things don't move that, that quickly. So the fact that you can get access to information six or eight weeks ahead of it being published officially, um, you know, it's helpful at the margin, but turning points aren't, aren't happening too too often and you don't have a big shock. So it, it doesn't matter that much. Whereas when you go through a huge shock like we have right now, um, it's not all that helpful to wait eight weeks to find out what's actually happening today. Whereas we've been finding out you know, on the Monday uh, what happened in the week leading up to that Friar prior. And so we've been publishing... Uh, on on that sort of stuff around spending and income, um, pretty much weekly, so so that people can understand what's going on. And so, in terms of us thinking about the economic outlook, it's been really really helpful. Um, I mean, the dynamics around spending tell us what's going on right now, sort of in a, six weeks in advance of when you get your retail trade report. And even then, a retail trade report is just a monthly report that's a, a measure of partial spending in the economy. You've got to wait the national accounts to get your full uh, services spend. And then on the income side, that tells us what's going on right now. But equally, it, it, it helps us to think about the future because we can start thinking about what kind of build-up in, in savings we've got. I mean, also, um, some of the other data that we look at at the bank, and we've done this for a while, is, is data around lending. Obviously, we have the lending data ahead of it being published officially. And so we could already see that lending, for example, into the housing market uh, was accelerating before that those figures were, were published um, by, the, by the ABS. So all, all of it is giving us a picture of what's happening far earlier than waiting for official statistics. And when you when things are moving so quickly uh, and you really, you're shooting in the dark without this sort of economic information, it's been really, really helpful to have it. So do you think, and this is something that goes back to uh, many, many years ago, talking with David Scott and yourself, Paul, on, on, on various things that we, we used to do, that how the ABS, a lot of what they did is very clunky and very – now, this is sort of operational, and, and excuse me if this is a little bit too not, – not exactly in line with what you're talking about, but there's always been the view that, that the ABS is maybe sort of shooting in the dark themselves with a lot of the things that they do. Do you think that there might be more of this ability that they could do to, to, to a lot more of the things that the ABS does to, to work with banks and work with institutions to get actual real live raw data? There is does a bit it, of that going on at the moment, actually. It, really? Yeah, so I, I, I don't – the ABS hasn't started publishing any official series using um, the bank data, but but and this, this would be across all the majors. But clearly, they have to go through a process of um, c- constructing some experimental series, watching those for a while before yeah, they're confident yeah. how to use them, and then that will become publicly available. But I know that work stream uh, is underway at the moment, and and through this COVID period, the, the banks, well, I can speak on behalf of CBA, they've actually been giving data to Treasury and to government so that at state level and federal level, so they have access to kind of what we're seeing internally around spending. So the ABS is going to get involved with that. I mean, when you think about it, it makes sense because the way the ABS collects most of their data is via surveys. Yeah. Um, they have to ring up, uh, ask businesses, it's ask bizarre. households, what did yeah. you do? Yeah. Um, you know, whereas no one's asking CBA anyone for in terms of 
the data that we spit out. It's just all transactions that are going through. It's yeah. it's all generated. You know, it, it's it's not a sample. Um, it, it is our the population, if you like, of CBA customers. It's real. It's use. real receipts. It's real data. That's right, it's, and yeah. it's real time. Um, I've actually seen uh, down at the CBA lab. Uh, I've seen those giant screens where you can tap around mm. uh, different uh, suburbs and say, you know, what? Uh, how does this suburb break down its spending in terms of, um, you know. Uh, groceries, uh, holidays, education, uh, medical, all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, look, it's great. I mean, one of the things we've had sort of a little bit of trouble with, with using our internal data related to credit and debit cards, is that we um, weren't really able to, to work out initially how much um, our data was being inflated by the fact that households and businesses were handling less cash. Uh, there was a shift underway pre-COVID anyway where people were just using cards to pay for things more. Yeah, right, you, that's you, a you dramatic see, adjustment, right? Yeah, and you yeah. see that in, um, I mean, uh, people buy a cup of coffee now with a card, whereas you know, previously no, no one would do that. So, so you had a shift taking place anyway pre-COVID, and we thought that was inflating annual spend by around 6%. But then when COVID came along, a lot of um, households and businesses just didn't want to physically handle cash, particularly over April and May. So we kind of knew that our card spend was going to be inflating actual spending. So, but, but we had to wait until we got the national accounts and the official figures to then work out what, what that impact might actually be. But, you know, notwithstanding, it was still all about direction for us and, you know, we could get a sense, were things getting better or worse? You know, what was the pace of improvement and what was the relative kind of differences across states? Um, I want to do very quickly super rapid fire questions. Uh, we always ask for some uh, for readers to to ask a few things. Um, Greg McKenna wants to know what do you think. So, really short answers. What do you think it would take for the RBA to uh, to to shift its uh, commitment to low rates forever? Like a broad guess. Look, the economic data has to keep getting better. Uh, they. There'll be no rush to do that because they don't want to put any upward pressure on the Australian dollar. So even at the moment, if they're you know, taking comfort from the fact that the data is getting better, they still want to retain a, a very dovish stance for because then they'll undermine what they're doing in terms of QE and putting upward pressure on the currency. But in terms of actually, um, you know, formally, and I think that the, the target on the three-year yield is the one to watch, formally change the language around rates on hold for another three years, um, and, and thereby, for by extension, you've got to do something about that target. Yeah, I think that the data's got to get to the point where um, they're upgrading their forecast to such an extent that they're no longer, the board cannot be sure that they're going to leave the cash rate on hold for another three years. And I think that'll come by mid next year. You know, stronger labour market, stronger improvement on, on spending, and it'll be a positive development, but they won't be able to keep saying three years when, when they're no longer sure themselves. Uh, Sir Lawrence Wildman wants to know, I think it's a great question, Lawrence, thank you, um, where you see the Nairu being after um, America's experience before this, right? So they hit something like 3% uh, on employment, and that was when finally you started to see some see some uh, wages pressure. So Yeah, look, it's, it's a bit of a cop-out. It's one of those ones you, you don't know until you get there. Um, but it's going to be lower than 5% because we kind of got to 5% before and we had a tiny bit of wages inflation, but but not not but not a lot. So I think it's lower than that. Uh, a lot of it will depend on where underemployment is at at the time as well. I mean, I think it it can be a little bit um, simplistic to just talking about it in terms of the unemployment rate. But I think what matters then is your spread between the unemployment rate and underemployment. So I think it 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 could be quite low if underemployment is, is stubbornly high. But I think if, if, if we see underemployment falling in line with the unemployment rate, 
then you'd, you'd, you'd want to assume uh, at this stage that around 4.5%, you start to see a pickup in wages growth. I mean, that, that was the expectation before this. I don't think a lot has happened to change that view. But as I said, you know, once the unemployment rate starts tracking down, uh, you really want to see what's happening to the underemployment rate because it's the sum of those two rates, which is underutilisation, which is most correlated with wages growth. Uh, very quickly, do you think monetary policy, uh, policy transmission is hamstrung because banks have, be, have become so risk averse? Um, for all this, the reasons that there have been, you know, like um, uh, lending standards, APRA interventions, et cetera, the last few years. Um, so, you know, the, effectively the, the, the RBA has had to keep pushing on that monetary policy lever um, to try and stimulate credit demand. Yeah, so that, that's really a question around the supply of credit, and I don't think there's been any problems at all. Uh, I think it, the, the slowdown in credit that we, we've seen in the past has primarily been demand-driven, which is why equally we saw new lending accelerate quite quickly in the back end of 2019 and early 2020 uh, on the on the back of lower interest rates for, for housing in particular. And we've seen that again. Uh, in fact, ABS uh, figures today on housing-related lending showed a record amount uh, for home purchases was lent in October. So that, that's a record of all time. So to me, there's no issues around the supply of credit. Uh, and in terms of business credit, well, that's come off quite a lot. But that's exactly what you'd expect in, a, in an economic downturn. I mean, investment tends to contract quite a bit. Mm. That reduces your demand for credit. And then the other thing it's, it's worth adding is that, and we talked a lot about household income, but company profits are actually up significantly over the Q2 and Q3, uh, in, in large part because of wage subsidies, then also cash payments to, to businesses. So if your profits are up, up quite a bit, then you wouldn't expect you know a lot of borrowing to be taking place because businesses have retained earnings. So... Yeah, you know, the, the the simple answer is I, I don't think supply of credit has been a problem at all, and any any changes you're seeing in credit are, are demand driven. Uh, it's been fascinating, and uh, I'll put you on the spot. Uh, housing uh, prices nationally next year. What do you, uh, what do you think? So um, we've got one more month to go of December, and then we can then I'll. Um, be able to do some new new round of forecasts where we've got any figures. I didn't sort of reluctant to put out a, a figure in the next sort of few weeks, given uh, it, it's a lot cleaner to get end of year. But we did put out a view in September uh, when most other forecasters were still going for that ten percent peak to trough and you know pretty soggy market that house prices were going to pick up quite a bit uh, through Q two. Uh, of next year that we had the second half is where they start to rocket higher i think the risks are that that's going to happen earlier given the recovery is better and then of course the rba cut again in november with the fixed rates going down a lot so uh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge early in the new year but i i think house prices all the forward-looking indicators suggest they're going to move quite a bit higher next year this has been a really fascinating conversation uh, we are tight for time so i got to wrap it up um, but gareth erd uh, head of Australian Economics at the Commonwealth Bank. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. It's been really nice to chat. It's been terrific. You can get Gareth research through ComBank Research. Uh, he's built a re- reputation over the last few years uh, uh, as a, a very accurate forecaster. Uh, and, and as I'm sure you'll have heard uh, from uh, from the conversation, he, he really knows his way around uh, the Australian economy. Uh, so uh, it's been great to have him on the show. Don't forget to subscribe, uh, rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at The BIP Show, also on Spotify. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore BIP underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The BIP Show. We're all there individually too at 
Colgo at James Whelan 42 and at Ken Bexler. Gareth is way too smart, isn't on Twitter, at least publicly. Um, so, uh, James, thank you very much. Yep. A uh, real quick shout out to a friend of ours, Chris Pidcock, who oh, plays Chris. uh plays cello for the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. Big fan of theirs. People think that we're not that artistic, but we're big fans of the arts. He's got a new album coming out. I think he's, he's his first one, Immersed in Bach. Uh, we'll put a link to it on the website. Yeah, he. Uh, it's. I've listened to it. It is really uh, terrific um, and worth listening to. And maybe we'll get him on the show sometime uh, to give us a little uh, performance. Uh, Ken, thanks very much. Thank you, guys, and thank you, Gareth, for coming on. Been uh, very informative. Really appreciate it. Cheers, Ken. Nice to chat. Okay, the show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. We will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.